Burnett and I are really excited this weekend because our daughter Angela gets to come and visit. Uh, that's really special because Angela and her husband Matt live in British Columbia. So COVID has kept us apart for well over a past year and a half. Uh, we've actually only seen her twice during that time. Uh, once we visited literally across a ditch on a country road that separates the United States from Canada. They were on the Canadian side, we were on the American side, and that little ditch was all that was between us. Uh, the other time we met up with them at what is called Peace Arch Park. For a few brief weeks, Canadians and Americans were allowed to get together inside of that park. Uh, the park spans the boundary of, the, of both countries. However, that visit almost didn't happen thanks to a slight miscalculation on my part. The park is located just outside of Blaine, Washington. And to get to it, you drive as though you're going to cross the border, but then just before the border crossing, you exit into a parking lot, and then from there you can walk into the park itself. Now, I had never gone into the park like that. So as we were approaching the border, Burnett and I were both looking for signs to the parking lot. Now, as you approach the border, there are at least four, maybe five lanes of traffic, one-way traffic, to accommodate all of the normal northbound border traffic. Uh, we had seen one or two signs along the way for the park, so we were sure that we were getting close. Um, and at one point, there is a single lane that exits on the left side of this big multi-lane highway and goes up over an overpass. That's the nexus lane which is for people who have special passes for faster border crossings. Now, Burnett and I have those passes, but we knew we didn't want to get into that lane because we didn't want to actually cross the border. We just wanted to get to the park. However, as we passed under the overpass, I glanced up and spotted this little sign up on the Nexus Road above me pointing to the parking lot for Peace Arch Park. I don't know why there wasn't a sign at the bottom at the exit ramp, but the sign was up above. Well, shoot, I missed it. Well, all we had to do was just turn around, right? I mean, how hard could it be? After all, the border was closed, so there was no traffic. We were literally the only car in all of those northbound lanes. Well, no sooner had I spotted my air than we rounded a corner and there was the border crossing. There were no exits, there were no turnaround lanes, it was just a one-way shot right to the Canadian border and the customs officials. Now, it turns out that once you hit that point, there is no such thing as just turning around. The customs officers were obviously bored to death, and we were the first thing of any interest that apparently had happened all day. And so we got thoroughly checked out. We got questioned. The truck got searched. We got searched. A whole lot of paperwork got filled out. I finally quizzed the officer if the paperwork was really necessary for us to turn around, and he informed me that if he didn't fill out all that paperwork, that when we returned to the U.S. side of the border crossing, 
they would put us into a 14-day mandatory quarantine. So the moral of the story is, it pays to know where you're going and choose your lane carefully. The passage from the Sermon on the Mount we will look at today is also all about knowing where you're going and choosing the right lane. Now, truth be told, we actually finished the Sermon on the Mount last week. Uh, there, were, there are two major sections to the sermon. First, there are the blessing statements of Matthew 5, 2 through 14. We considered those in detail way back in January through March of this year. There, Jesus paints a picture of what we might think of as the ideal heart profile of a citizen of his kingdom. It's a person who's poor in spirit, who mourns over unrighteousness and hungers and thirsts for true righteousness to prevail. It's someone who is meek, merciful, pure in heart, eager to make peace. It's someone who's even willing to be persecuted for doing the right thing. The second section begins in Matthew 5, verses 15 through 17. There, Jesus responds to an accusation that had been leveled by some of the religious elite that, in his teaching, he was suggesting his Jewish brothers should turn away from a life of devotion to Torah, the laws of Moses. Jesus argues that, on the contrary, he's not calling people away from obedience, but rather to a fuller, deeper obedience. He goes so far as to say that he himself has come to fulfill the purposes of the law. The implication being that the person who truly wants to live in God's favor is one who is specifically following him, Jesus not simply adhering to a moral code. He then launches into a lengthy section from Matthew 5.18 all the way through chapter 7, verse 11. And there he demonstrates that what he's calling people to is something far deeper than the shallow religious norms of the day. What he stresses over and over again is that what God is concerned about is not simply an outward show of piety, but an inward heart that is right. Finally, he wraps it up in Matthew 7:12, where he lays down what we often call the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Now note how this ties right back to his opening statement that what he is teaching did not abolish, but actually fulfilled Torah. He's calling people to truly live out the laws as given by Moses and the prophets in their fullest intent. Now, that really wraps up the teaching part of the sermon. What remains is the application, the call to action. Having run a business for over 20 years, I've done a lot of sales. A big part of sales is presenting your product to the prospective customer. You try to identify your customer's need and help them see how your product can solve their problem. You explain and demonstrate what your product can do. You try to answer objections and help the client understand the value that they'll receive. But the job isn't done until you get to the ask. 
at some point you have to move beyond simply talking about the product and ask the customer to make a commitment, to sign on the line, you know, pull out their wallet and put some Benjamins on the table. Make what you're offering their own. In this final section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges his listeners to make a decision, and he puts it in stark terms. Let's take a look at what he had to say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. John Stott points out that Jesus frames his call to action by talking about a series of twos. There are two gates. And then he talks about two ways. And he talks about two crowds. And then two destinations. But the starting point is the gate. That's the point of entry. Burnett and I had only been married a year when we moved to Southern California so that I could start grad school. And like most young married students, money was tight. There were lots of fun things to do in Los Angeles, but most of them required money, something we didn't have much of. And so we became masters of the cheap date. One of the cheap dates we discovered was going to Disneyland after 9 p.m. in the evening. Now, this was back in the days before they had built the big multi-story parking garage. So you still parked in this huge open parking lot. Since the park was about to close down for the evening, uh, they would stop charging to park in the lot at around 9 p.m. So we could park for free if we showed up after 9. And when we showed up, there would be almost no one driving in. So it was kind of fun uh, driving into this giant multi-lane parking complex and having your choice of lanes and stalls. Now from there, we could walk up to the front gate. And we knew a place where we could see some of the electric light parade that was happening inside the park. The important thing was to get there after 9, but before 9.30. Because at 9.30, that's when they launched all the fireworks. And so we could stand outside the gate and enjoy the fireworks all for free. Why? Because we hadn't gone through the gate. See, going through the gate cost something, and we didn't want to pay. Of course, there was a price to be paid. The price was we didn't actually get into the Magic Kingdom. We were just parking lot spectators. Jesus says that entering God's kingdom also means passing through a gate. There is a decision point and there are costs associated with that choice. He describes the gate itself as narrow, more like a turnstile. You go through one at a time. However, it's not the only gate. There is a wide gate as well. But that's it. There are only two gates. While the path of life offers a myriad of choices, Jesus says that most of them are really just different lanes 
all passing through the same gate. Now, going through the wide gate is easy. Pick any lane and bring along all the baggage you want. It, it takes no thought to go through that gate. Just live your life. Go with the flow. You'll float through without any effort. I read a fictional short story years ago in which a guy gets murdered in New York. And the way the killer got rid of the body was he simply carried the victim out onto the sidewalk during rush hour, propped him up in the crush of people passing by, and let the crowd take the body away. That's how the wide gate works. Just jam in with the crowd and they'll lead the way. On the other hand, the narrow gate is, well, narrow. You don't just accidentally pass through. You have to want to take that path. It's a gate you have to pass through as an individual. You may very well have to leave some things behind. But passing through the gate isn't the end of the journey. Jesus says that there is a path to be traveled. The path offered by the wide gate is easy. Anything goes. You can pursue and create your truth any way you see fit. It is the path of maximum personal freedom and expression. It is the path that applauds you simply being you without any limits or restraints. The path of the narrow gate, he said, is hard. It makes demands of the traveler that the wide path does not. It challenges, challenges you in ways you might prefer not to be challenged. It takes you through terrain that you might rather avoid. It may direct you to turn left when everything in you wants to turn right. It may demand sacrifices, even hardship. Given those choices, it's no surprise that there is quite a difference in the volume of traffic on each of those paths. Jesus says that the wide path is where the majority go. It's where the party's at. If you want to take your life direction from popular opinion, then the wide path is the path for you. The narrow path is far less popular. Jesus says there are only a few who find it. You wouldn't choose it unless there was something bigger at stake, something that mattered more than just doing your own thing and hanging out with friends. Jesus maintains that there is indeed something bigger to be considered, and that is the end of the path. The gates are not gates to nowhere. The paths have a destination. Jesus says the wide path may be where all the lemmings gather, but they're heading for a cliff. The narrow path may be harder in the short term, but Jesus says where it leads to is life, life in God's kingdom. So what did Jesus' original audience hear? Well, by and large, they were not a bunch of hedonists. They were devout Jews for whom religion and religious practice was a central part of their lives. One of the reasons they were seated on that mountainside listening to this very unusual rabbi was because they were religiously interested. They were 
nice folks doing a lot of good things. The wide path for them was the way of cultural religion. Going with the crowd meant attending synagogue on Saturdays, observing various holy days, making pilgrimages to Jerusalem, saying their prescribed prayers at the prescribed times, giving their alms to the poor, trying to maintain a lifestyle that would be viewed by others as upright. And yet, despite doing all the right things and keeping up all the right traditions, here came this rabbi telling them that if they really wanted to be citizens of God's kingdom, they needed to repent. He dared to suggest that the five-lane, perfectly landscaped, time-honored, scenic highway they were comfortably cruising down was actually going the wrong way. He thought they should exit off of that freeway and instead head up a narrow, winding, steep, rocky footpath that seemed like an impossible climb. Now, the big road encouraged good driving. The big road they were on was a very moral road, at least at one level it seemed like it. It was kind of like uh, that Google code of conduct. Remember they said, don't be evil. Well, that included things like, don't kill people. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't lie. Be kind to your friends. You know, be nice. But the Jesus Trail, the Jesus Trail was way harder. He asked people to give up the anger in their hearts and love their enemies, even forgive people who had wronged them. He asked people to accept insults and even injustices and instead return kindness and mercy. On the big road, there were lots of beautiful, tricked out, fancy cars. People driving vehicles down life's highway that were meant to impress. They were doing lots of great and good things, and you knew that because they did them in big showy ways to be sure that you saw just how good they were. But the Jesus Trail didn't have any room for showing off. It called people to do good simply because they wanted to please their Heavenly Father. It didn't care whether or not doing good gained any applause or earned any favors from other people on the trail. To walk the Jesus Trail meant digging way deeper into personal business than any of the paths the other rabbis talked about. Jesus kept pushing them to look not just at their behaviors, but at their motives. He called them to account not just for actions, but attitudes. If living life like that was really the only way to heaven, well then, it sounded like a hard way indeed. Impossible, really. He was suggesting that even the most religiously zealous among them, the Pharisees, still weren't holy enough. He literally said that. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if that's the standard, what chance then did a common tradesman or a household servant, a merchant in the bazaar, or a harried mother chasing children have of meeting that standard? 
Let me jump jump you down into the passage we'll look at in more detail next week. Matthew 7.22, here's what it says. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus here pictures the great judgment day when we stand before God. And the shocking thing to Jesus' original audience was that he, a Jewish rabbi from Palestine, declared that he would be the one passing judgment. And and that those standing before him would actually attempt to argue for their worthiness based on great acts that they would profess were done in his name. More shocking still, Jesus said that he would tell them to get out of his sight. He would declare them to be workers of lawlessness, unrighteous, people unfit to enter God's kingdom. Why? Well, one very simple reason. He says, I never knew you. There was no relationship. Listen to Jesus' words from John chapter 10, verse 9. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So there it is. The way to life is narrow. The gateway and shepherd is Jesus. And choosing that path means letting go of things. That sounds hard. But you know, getting to the end of an easy path and finding you're at a dead end is even harder. As long as we're looking ahead, let's jump to the closing verses of this sermon. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When it comes to knowing where to go, the people sitting on that hillside recognized that they were listening to someone who knew the map. He wasn't guessing about where to go or where the roads ended up. He knew. When a guy like that tells you you're on the wrong road, it pays to pay attention. Let me think with you a bit about what this may mean for us. The first thing I have to say is that if you haven't yet made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, if you've never taken that first step to ask him to become the rescuer and leader of your life, then that is the first and the most important thing you need to do. In a lot of circles, this isn't a popular message because it is narrow. We don't like narrow. We like options lots and lots of options. And we don't like the idea that any options are inferior to other options. We want all options to be equal. But we know all options aren't equal, don't we? The old adage that all roads lead to Rome may have had some truth in ancient Italy, but from Squim, Washington, I can assure you that not all roads lead to Rome. When it comes to a genuine 
life-giving personal relationship with God, Jesus was clear. The real path, the only path, is narrow. There are bigger highways available, but they are literally dead ends. And that's not my idea. That's what Jesus said. Maybe you're one of those people that has tried driving in every lane you can find on that wide way. You've tried to convince yourself that you can do this on your own. You can find your own way, come up with your own rule book, design your own religion. But something deep in your soul knows there's a problem. Something isn't right. Maybe you've pursued fun and success from every angle, but life keeps hitting dead ends. Money hasn't been able to buy what you're looking for. Career, accomplishments, even friends have turned up to be shallow. Every corner in the road promises to have the big payoff just on the other side, but every time you round it, the road just keeps on going. Sex, alcohol, drugs give some distraction, but you know that if that's the lane you're choosing, there is a price to be paid. And if you keep going down that road, it's going to end badly. Maybe you've toyed with all sorts of philosophical and religious ideas. Some of them maybe even involved some pretty crazy driving. But your heart is still empty. Maybe you've been playing the church game. Maybe you're even really good at it. I mean, you work hard at being a really super nice person. Anyone who knows you would say that you're awesome. And you like hanging around with Jesus' people and even mouthing all the right words. But you know in your heart that like Burnett and I watching the fireworks from the parking lot, you've never personally stepped through the gate. There are things about following Jesus that seem like they would just cost too much. Listen, really living the way Jesus talks about in this sermon frankly sounds impossible to me too. Here's what Jesus said once to a very religious man who was trying hard to get to heaven. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, if I try to follow the Jesus path on my own, I'm going to fail. You will too. Jesus said that the only way I can be that kind of person is to become a new person. And that can only happen when I fully and willingly surrender my heart and my life to Jesus. Now, there are plenty of reasons to want to stay on the freeway. The driving is smoother. You may have a lot of friends there. There are some pretty fun stops along the way. But Jesus would counter all of those reasons and say, that isn't really where you want to go. It may be how you'd like to get there, but it isn't going where you want to go. So will following Jesus make you popular? Probably not. But does that really matter? You can be the most popular lemming in the herd, but if you're all going over a cliff, is that a contest worth winning? We have to leave anything behind. I'm pretty sure you will. But it won't be anything that's really worth keeping. A well-known Christian missionary named Jim Elliott, 
who ended up dying as a martyr for his faith, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. In fact, you may find the things that you leave behind to follow Jesus are the very things that were holding you down. Now, right about here is where some people get sidetracked on the question of what about those who have never heard about Jesus? What about people who didn't even know there was a narrow gate to choose? Well, briefly, let me just say that Scripture is very clear about two aspects of God's character. First, He is absolutely just. He never acts in an unrighteous or an unfair way. And second, to the core of His being, He is love. Whatever God decides to do in regards to those who have never had the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus will be absolutely just and totally in keeping with all that perfect love would do. When the day comes that we fully know that answer, no one is going to look at God and say, that wasn't fair, or you're not really loving after all. But beyond that, the Bible doesn't spend much time providing information on questions which don't directly concern us. We are not people who have never heard. In fact, the only people who ever asked that question are people who have heard. The question that we'll be held responsible for on Judgment Day is, knowing there were two gates, which gate did you choose? For those of us who have chosen that narrow gate, this passage is a good reminder that we are still on the journey. And sometimes the journey is hard. Jesus said that right up front. Sometimes the journey is hard because we keep trying to drag stuff through the gate and up the trail that Jesus wants us to leave behind. We kind of want to have Jesus plus. As we've trekked with Jesus, there have been some extra baggage we've been tempted to pick up and drag along or maybe even go back and retrieve something we already tossed overboard once. There are grudges we'd like to hang on to towards people that have wronged us. There are lusts that we'd like to sneak into our carry-on luggage where we're pretty sure nobody will notice. There are some things that we're pretty proud of, but, you know, having a big head on a narrow trail is bound to get us stuck. Repentance means that we keep making the choices to shed the baggage. So, is there something you're trying to drag up the trail but Jesus keeps tapping you on the shoulder to let it go? In fact, maybe he's doing more than just tapping you on the shoulder. Maybe he's allowed some hardship to get your attention. That's not because he doesn't like you. It's just the opposite. He wants you to be free to follow. Sometimes the journey's hard because others don't understand. They resent that we've chosen a different trail. They mock us for giving up what everyone else said we should embrace. They even find ways to punish us for staying true to our convictions. Sometimes the journey's hard because of the trials that God permits that try us and test us. Those trials are so often the things God uses to strengthen us and grow us deeper in our walk with Him. But we can also find ourselves getting tired on the journey, just wanting to sit down or maybe even give up. 
I like what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Here it is from the New Living Translation. He said, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Don't give up. Even when the path is hard, it is still the path to life. That big, easy highway sometimes looks pretty tempting, but it's a lie. Jesus said the end is destruction. You see, mountain people aren't passive people. They have made a choice. They've made the hard choice to walk a narrow, steep trail. They've chosen the way of Jesus with the full knowledge that without Jesus, they can't make it. They know that there is a wider and easier way, but they've become convinced that the only trail that truly leads to life is the one Jesus is leading them along. And they've made the choice to follow him. That's what mountain people do.